Okay, so what are we talking about today? We're talking about Ascension Sunday, but I had a, I had a dream, and uh, I don't know if today, I don't know how, what t- what's going to happen today, but I had a dream on, um, kind of got vaguer, I should have written it down. I should write down your dreams, even when they feel like you'll never forget them. Um, so I had this dream, and the, the pieces that I can remember uh, was that it was, a, it was a sermon that was actually given to me, uh, so I've never had a dream where it was actually clear that the sermon was being given to me. And it was on insults and, uh, like, being insulted. And uh, it was also, it was really interesting because there were these um, dead pieces of bodies, and or dead people, and uh, they were being attached to me. And um, life was coming into them through me, and they were coming back alive. Um, and so I thought that that was pretty cool. Uh, a little Walking Dead, but like kind of cool at the same time. <laughs> anyway, uh, so today I want to talk about shame and persecution. And to start, um, as I sometimes do, I'll tell you a story that's uh, a vignette, not a true, not a real story, but it's a vignette of something um, that kind of sometimes happens in my clinic. That's a fairly common story. And, uh, you know, one of the things that happens to people that, that's really impacting on them that they usually discount uh, is bullying. Um, so oftentimes I'll ask people in an initial interview, uh, you know, particularly if we're doing like a PTSD, you know, assessment, is I'll say, like, have you had any trauma in the past, uh, you know, before this, you know, trauma that we're talking about? And... I've learned to say, and I want to know about bullying as well, because people just discount it. They don't think about bullying as being that impacting when they actually have, there's evidence to show that bullying is as impactful as uh, parental abuse, um, uh, which usually people do think of when they think of trauma. Anyway, so there was this, uh, I'll tell it this way, there once was a boy who was bullied. And so through early elementary years, he... Uh, was just bullied. He had no recourse. He, he didn't know what to do. He was trying everything that was kind of what, what he could come up with that was socially appropriate. And so, you know, grade two passes by, grade three passes by, four, nothing's working. He's just ostracized and being traumatized. And then, uh, in grade five, six, let's say, he starts uh, to hit back. And, uh, and he actually seems to be quite good at it. And he starts fighting, and, uh, you know, people start treating him better. I wouldn't say that they're, you know, cuddly close, but they are like, he is respected. He is respected. And this actually becomes his primary language. And if you look at a lot of kind of subcultures, antisocial cultures, respect is a very key word in those cultures. Um, and it becomes his language. He's not necessarily interested in connection. He doesn't talk a lot about friendships. Friends, you know, they stab you in the back, uh, things like that. But what he is interested in is respect. And um, he would tell stories uh, in the session uh, about people he's hurt. He's older now when he's seeing me. Let's say he's, uh, I don't know, 15 years old. And... He's, he tells me stories in the session about hurting people. And he has a smile on his face as he does it, and he laughs. And, and 
uh, it's kind of a common thing for him to talk about. And then I notice a connection, that whenever I ask him about pain in his life, he uh, almost immediately will switch into a story about hurting somebody. He doesn't talk about the pain that he's experienced. Instead, he talks about the pain that he's inflicted on others. And he, but he talks about it in a way like, this was the type of person who would hurt me. Or this person made this comment. So I am talking about my pain, but I'm putting it in the context of how I defeated this person. I'm not talking about the pain that I experienced in grade 4, 3, and 2 when I had no recourse. I'm talking now about, oh, this person tried to do this, and this person tried to do this, and this is what I did to them. And he would laugh in the session. This person, some clients, are very connected to the joy that they experience when they talk about the pain they inflict on others. And this client is, let's say this client is particularly insightful, as has happened, where clients will come in and they'll even say, I had a plan for my life. Uh, you know, I was going to be a cadet. I was going to be... Um, you know, a spelling champion. I don't know. They, they had some kind of plan for their life. And, uh, but I wasn't one of the wealthy kids. I wasn't one of the kids who could fit in. And so now this is who I am. And I have nothing else. They want vindication. They want victory. And they want justice. They are seeking justice. And I actually feel like the, the, the journey that people have in this church and in this country is actually for justice. And I don't have a problem with that. I actually think that the seeking that this child had for justice and vindication was actually healthy. Um, and oftentimes when we seek justice, it's in response to shame. And uh, it's an alternative to shame. Now, when you think, so I'm going to go away from the story. Just remember that story about the kid. I'll come back to it later. I want you to think now about shame. Because uh, I think that's what this kid was responding to, was responding to this shame that he experienced in grade 3, 4, and 5, and how he's never going to experience it again. Now, who, maybe you could tell me, probably can, who is a popular writer, speaker on shame? Can any, um, you can actually respond. Uh, is there anybody who knows a popular writer or speaker on the topic of shame? Brené Brown. Brown. There we go. Brené Brown. You guys know who Brené Brown is, right? Is, is, it, is it just me who knows? Okay, some people know, some people don't. Okay. A lot of people do, some people don't. Okay, so I'll, I'll explain Brené Brown a little bit. Now, I'm, I'm going to preface this talk. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be kind of talking a little bit about Brené Brown. But I want to preface it and say, I have not read everything. I haven't actually read any of her books. I have listened to some of her TED Talks. And I am not an expert on Brené Brown. So I'm going to be talking about some of the ideas that I've seen her present and kind of my impression about who she is. But I realize that I cannot like, speak with authority on who Brené Brown is and who her message, what her message in life is. So this could be a misunderstanding. But I am going to respond to some things that I've heard her say. And... Uh, so my impression from what, what I've heard her say, and this is a pretty clear theme, I think, for her, is that you deal with shame with vulnerability. Does that make sense? You deal with shame with vulnerability. And people who have a lot of shame have more difficulty being vulnerable. And people who have a little bit of shame have an easier time being vulnerable. And if you want to have less shame, you should talk about it. And 
that's often what I actually do in my clinic. Like as a psychologist, I have people come in, they talk about their shame, and they leave and they feel better. When you talk about something that's shameful, this is usually what happens and usually why it's helpful. We get our reality from what we see and what we hear, but we get our reality primarily from what other people think and, and say. And so when you share something shameful, what typically happens is the other person says, that's not that bad. They respond with less disgust and horror than we expect them to. And as a psychologist, I am trained that even when I am horrified, that I do not behave horrified <laughs> with what people say and do. I am desensitized to the horror of the world. And so it's like, okay, yeah. You know. And I have been in prisons and I have worked with sex offenders. I am well trained to act as if there is, I don't know, you know I, I'm well trained, I have a poker face, you know, I can, I can do that. And what happens when you do that is the person says, hey, maybe I'm not so bad. We call it being normalized, you know, normalization, it's a key element in therapy. Normalized, I am not so bad, but if you keep the shame inside and you don't talk about it, then you create a fictional world around you and what everybody else thinks about you, and usually it's worse than what's actually there. So when I, when I talk about Brandy Brown and vulnerability, you know, for a lot of things it's good. A lot of things, there's, there's a reality, and especially in a Christian community it's a good thing. But there is a problem. And if you think that you can manage shame only with vulnerability in, in the way that I think Brené Brown talks about it, I think you're actually going to get into trouble. So I'm going a little bit against Brené Brown. Oh my goodness. I know. She is quite the icon right now, you know? I remember I watched this comedy and it was like these women and they were talking about Brené Brown and like as if she was like you know, the thing in today's culture. So anyway, uh, I'm going to maybe try to burst a little bit of the bubble of Brené Brown and how wonderful uh, she is. So, um, one of the reasons that I have a little bit of trouble with Brené Brown and normalizing, and I struggle with this actually in being a psychologist, is that shame primarily comes from sin. When did we first experience shame? We experienced it in the garden after sin entered the world. That was the first shame experience. Now, I get it, like a lot of shame that now happens is off. You know, we don't quite, oh, maybe we shouldn't be ashamed of this. Maybe, you know, like there's, we need to be corrected. But what can often happen is that you come into a conversation and you expose a piece of shame and the world says that's okay. And maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. Maybe we shouldn't be normalizing all of the shame that we experience. Maybe we shouldn't be calling things that are dark light and things that are light dark. Just to make people feel better. Just to make people feel better. Now, I want to make people feel better. But there are other ways of dealing with shame than just saying, hey, we all do it. Don't worry about it. I do that too. Oh, well, then it's okay. I actually have that happen a lot when I'm dealing with parents. The kids will come in or whatever, and they're like, they're like, Johnny's doing this. And they're like, but don't worry, I do that too. And I'm like, well, that doesn't mean <laughs> it's not meeting diagnostic criteria for something. It just means that we have to have another meeting after. <laughs> it's amazing how often that happens that the parents are, 
coming in for an assessment after their children, kind of saying, I didn't realize that that was something. <laughs> um, and I'm going to talk about that a bit more, about how, um, uh, you know, shame, well, okay, maybe I'll, I'll finish that right now. So the, the main thing that we can do with that, instead of normalizing it, is we have the blood of Jesus for that. You know, we have the blood of Jesus to deal with shame and sin, where we don't say it's okay to do that, but we say there is an answer for that. Yes. Now, there's mercy for that. But if we say it's okay, then you don't need mercy. If you say it's okay, then you don't need Jesus. If we say, oh, well, everybody does it, so it's fine. But you don't get to take everybody with you when you face Jesus. And just because everybody does it doesn't mean that everybody's okay, that he's okay with it. He doesn't have insecurity around, wow, there's a lot of you, and there's only one of me. You know, oh, well, if you all agree, then I'll agree with you. He's not insecure. He's like, I don't care how many people say this. This is the line. There's the blood of Jesus. That's the answer. There's the blood of Jesus. Okay. The second one is the one I want to focus on a little bit more today. This is the second time that vulnerability doesn't work with shame. And that is when the world doesn't think it's okay, when it won't be normalized. Now, the general response, 99, maybe, I don't know, percentage of the time, if you tell somebody something, the urge to make you feel better is there, and they will normalize it for you, particularly therapists. They're good at it. But there is a time, and we even have it in the clinic. I'll read it out in the consent form. Everything is confidential, except if you tell me that there is a child in danger. I'm not going to normalize that. In fact, I'm going to call somebody. So there are limits on this. That's a pretty like, wide out there limit. Like it's, There's a lot that goes in therapy. But in the community, if you are vulnerable about something that the world will not normalize, they're not going to lower your shame. They're not going to lower your shame. And that's what I want to focus on today. Uh, you can be harmed if you're vulnerable in the wrong place. You can be harmed publicly. Now, I have uh, Christians, um, people talk to me about Christians when they come into the clinic sometimes. And I have to say that most of the time it's not positive when they talk about Christianity, when people talk about Christian stuff uh, in the clinic. Now, most of the time, people don't talk positively in my clinic at all, you know, so uh, I don't know if that means anything. I'm not, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's amazing to me. I have this fish tank, and I can call it beautiful because I didn't put it in. It's this gorgeous fish tank, and I'm not a fish person, and it's an expensive tank, and I don't like really expensive Decorations, but especially when they're constantly expensive. But I keep this thing because it's gorgeous. Like, it's just amazing. And it's amazing to me how few clients actually see it. It's big. Like, it's big, you know, and it's bright. And it's right there when you walk in. All the children see it, that's for sure. But it's amazing to me. People will come in and they're just like, and they just are focused, you know. That's all to say. People don't talk about positive things when they come to see me. They are there because they have a problem. And when they talk about Christianity, it's often when it's a problem. And 
If I was to tell them that I was a Christian in that moment, I'm not hiding the fact that I'm a Christian other than in any way that's greater than the fact that I'm hiding so many things about myself when I'm in therapy. I'm not there to talk about myself, so I don't share most things, you know. Uh, it's actually quite odd for me to talk about myself, including the fact that I'm a Christian. So people will often say to me, you know, Christians are, you know, blank, blank, blank. You know, I would never see a psychologist who's a Christian because blank, 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 you know. And, and uh, you know, you're good, but those ones, you know, uh, uh, it's puts me in a little bit of an awkward situation. <laughs> but they don't do too much research on the internet. Um, and uh, we have to be um, we have to be careful. Uh, we have to be wise with being vulnerable. And so this kind of continues the boundaries. We have to be wise with being vulnerable. Because if I was vulnerable in that moment, I mean, it's Canada. I'm probably going to get a polite response, but that client's probably also not going to come back. Right? You can tell people lots of things, and they'll nod and change what they were just saying, and you might not hear from them again. And some other people might hear about that conversation, and you might not hear from them either. When we talk about persecution... Um, there's two main things that the Bible says about it. To be happy when it happens, to be filled with joy, and to be careful about doing things that bring persecution. To be happy about it and to be careful. I find that so interesting. If I'm supposed to be so happy about it, why do I have to be so careful <laughs> about it? So that's where I think we get a little mixed up. Because this is what I hear a little bit in the Christian world, is that people get a little bit mixed up about uh, about persecution and how we're supposed to engage uh, in dangerous situations. So first I'm going to talk about being careful. Um, and how, and to say that, I, I want to say and continue to say that we actually experience quite a bit of persecution uh, around Christianity in Canada. And it's not around um, the fundamental, like the uh, being Christian. Most people are actually okay with people that are Christian. Um, I remember talking to a psychologist and they said to me, you know, I'm fine with, with Christian beliefs. I'm fine with that. But I do think it kind of deserves some attention and potentially an intervention when people actually start behaving based on those beliefs. You know, they change their behavior based on those beliefs. Then, then we actually need to maybe do something to, to help them, you know, with that. It, but it almost kind of sounded like, but don't worry, you're not going to see that that often. <laughs> I remember talking to another client, and this is, this is kind of a theme, I think, in Canada, where it's like, well, you know, my parents, it's usually my parents, my parents, they have these beliefs. They're just not, and one of the words that they use that's more common, they're not progressive. They're not kind of almost that, like, just use a synonyms for progressive, enlightened, modern, thoughtful, wise, smart, um, Interesting. <laughs> I don't know if that's right. It's <laughs> a good one. Um, they're behind. They're slow. They're weak. Uh, they're uncaring. They're unaware. These are. This is the theme that our culture has around um, around Christianity. One of the words to kind of divide this line between Christians that are okay and Christians that are not okay is the word fundamentalist. Now, there might actually be a real definition. I didn't even bother to look it up because I don't think it applies to the way people actually use the word fundamentalist Christian. 
When I hear the word fundamentalist Christian, I, I, ha- I basically say to myself, I have no idea what you're talking about other than to say that you're not okay with some things in Christianity and you've lumped that category, whatever that category is, into the word fundamentalist Christian. Because what I hear is everybody uses that differently. And they lump different categories into the word fundamentalist Christian. But it just means too much. Too much of this. Too much of that. Too much Christianity. Too much actual behavior based on Christianity. Now, can Christians go wrong? Can Christians do too much of things? Sure. And if we want to create a category for that group as fundamentalist Christian, sure. But what I'm saying is that this is used widely to kind of demark okay Christians from not okay Christians. It's like there's Christians and then there's fundamentalist Christians. And those are the bad ones. Those are the ones that we need to be worried about. And um, so in Canada, we don't have a lot of like physical uh, persecution, which is what we usually kind of think of when we think about persecution. But we have a ton of shame. We have a ton of shame around being Christian, particularly a Christian who is potentially in that category that somebody has as being fundamentalist. A Christian particularly who bases their beliefs and decisions on what Jesus did and what is written in the Bible. There is a ton of shame that is heaped on this in subtle ways. Canadians are very polite. But Canadians are also very sensitive. So for all of that politeness, there's still a very present... It's hard for people to pinpoint where the shame came from, came from, but they know it's like, oh, people are not okay with this. People are not okay with me doing this. And that is shame. Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be wise as serpents. It goes on. Beware of men, or they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Matthew ten sixteen. There's other scriptures about this, but this is kind of one of the clearest passages, and it goes on to talk about um, the difficult things that can happen to Christians. And I I believe that these things uh, likely will at some point happen in Canada in a more obvious way. Um, But you could almost interpret this in a way, I will deliver you up for the courts. You will be given over to judgment. People will judge you based on your beliefs. And that's true today. That is true today. So be innocent as doves, but also be wise as serpents. Beware of men. Now, this is tricky because in our church, we want to be passionate. That's a very clear theme in our church, where we don't want to just be here for business contacts you know we don't want to be here you know to find somebody to kind of like fill my golf schedule you know like that's not that's not this church and I know that and so there's a very tricky thing because it's very real to have fear of man right 
we don't want to have fear of man. So, uh, are, in order to almost kind of prove that we don't have fear of man, are we, we, there's almost this urge to kind of run from that side and run into potentially persecution. And there's this kind of, because there's this barrier, right? And so it's very, I find that when there's a barrier, it's hard to be graceful. I don't know if you've ever tried to cr climb a big fence that's difficult to climb over, but it's hard to do it with style. <laughs> with grace. Especially if there's some barbed wire on there. It's going to get ugly, you know what I mean? And you're, it's going to be hard to know what to do, it's going to be painful, and you're going to make mistakes. And that's what I kind of feel like this fear of man thing is. It's like, I know I need to get over this, I can't have fear of man, but I just don't know how much I'm supposed to push in this way that's going to be difficult. So I just need to get over the fence and do stuff, right? Like, I just need to go out there and proclaim the gospel. And it's like, yeah, maybe. But how far? It's like, well, am I supposed to go this far now? Now I'm supposed to go this far. But it's really hard to be graceful and know how far forward to go when there's a fence in the middle of that. And you have to, like, push over the fence, then you go too far. Like, I, maybe to use another analogy, I know it's almost the same as, like, uh, what can happen with people with assertiveness. We're often training people to be assertive, especially angry people. They're terrible often at being assertive, which is why they get so angry. They bottle it in, and boom, and they explode. So we want them to tell this. They want to, we want them to become assertive in a slower, more gentle way as they go and not have to explode. But as you teach somebody to be assertive which is like overcoming the fear of man, they often are terrible at it. Uh, it's hard to kind of know the graces of how to be a little bit more assertive, to work in the gray of assertiveness when all you've known is stuffing and yelling. Well, where is the boundary? How am I supposed to handle this? Well, you're supposed to subtly say this and kind of like, well, am I just supposed to tell the person I'm cold? Well, what if you rub your arms a little bit, you know? What is that? You know, like, that's subtly telling somebody rather than blowing up two months later because you're frozen. You know, like, it's kind of this subtlety, right? You know, of going in the gray and then you do a little more. But it's hard to do that when you don't have a lot of experience or when there's a lot of fear mixed in. I believe that we are called to be wise in this. And it's very difficult to be wise in something when you're filled with fear. Because what you'll end up doing is you'll pull back because you're afraid, and then when you finally get the courage, you'll bang through that, and you'll go way too far and alienate everybody. And then it'll be a terrible experience, and you'll back up and be like, I'm never doing that again. I have no more friends. And then you'll be like, later on at some point, you'll build up the courage. God called me, and boom, you bang through, and, and I don't know. Like it, I don't know how it's supposed to look, so it's very hard to go into somebody's life and say, you were too filled with fear of man or you were too bold. How do I do that? I don't know. The Holy Spirit's supposed to be guiding you. But it's very hard to listen to the Holy Spirit when you're filled with fear. Yeah. Now, the second part of this is that we are supposed to count it all joy when we're persecuted. And this is because we will be vindicated. I don't think we're actually supposed to enjoy the shame that other people put on us. I don't think we're supposed to be masochistic in some way, where we're supposed to be people who are just really good and loving pain.
I think we're supposed to count it as joy because there's something attached to persecution. This is Ascension Sunday. Acts 1, 6 to 11. Can you maybe put this one up on the screen if you have it? So Acts 1, 6. So I'm just going to read the Ascension. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the time, the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness to Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them with white, in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This is Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven. And he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The cross was a terrible experience, and it lasted what I would imagine felt like a long time. But he was vindicated. He was justified. And um, he also didn't just go into the persecution willy-nilly. He didn't go, and go there on his second day on the earth. He waited 30 years before even starting public ministry. And there are many times when he slipped away when people were beginning to persecute him. So even though he was the man working with the least amount, with the most grace to walk in the gray, he didn't just jump into persecution. He walked into persecution with thoughtful, discerning wisdom. And he counted it all joy, not because it was pleasant on the cross, but because there's a vindication that came for him and came to all who follow. When you experience... The persecution that we walk into gives us shame, but it's not our shame. And it doesn't get fixed with vulnerability. You have to be vulnerable to actually take on that shame. In that case, it's actually the opposite of what Brené Brown is talking about. Jesus was vulnerable by walking into Jerusalem, and shame was heaped on him. It didn't take away his shame. It gave him shame. They shamed him. They mocked him. Sin was heaped on him. Our shame was given to him. His vulnerability carried our shame. But there's a dynamic in the spirit that happens when you take on shame that isn't yours. If you're taking on shame and you have your own shame that's yours, this is my shame, this is my sin, and you go to the cross, that's the first one. You give it to the, you give it to the cross, you give it to Jesus, and there's mercy. So that's, that's like great, right? You're vulnerable, but you're vulnerable to Jesus, right? You don't just normalize it. You give it to him, and he takes it away. And there's another beautiful dynamic when you take on shame that's not yours. 
When Jesus took on shame that wasn't his, it was our shame that was put on him, there's another dynamic that happens. And that is vindication. It's glory. In the early church, they experienced a lot of persecution. Persecution was coming and they would, they would tighten up. And they would go with greater boldness. And then persecution would come and they would tighten up, come together, and they would go to four with greater boldness. Somebody was given a job description to persecute them. Saul was hired to be a full-time persecutor of Christians. Christians were fearful of him. But they continued to walk in boldness and in wisdom and in innocence. And the glory that resulted broke through in this age and blinded Saul. It vindicated the people. Why are you persecuting me? There's a dynamic in heaven, and you can actually feel this. God has given this dynamic to us. He, didn't just ha- he doesn't just have it. He actually gave it to us to des- so that we could describe it. I experienced this in my clinic, too. And, and as, a, as a father, when somebody has been unjustly uh, convicted, when somebody has been given something that's clearly not theirs, I've had clients like this, you know, uh, insurance companies or things like that will sometimes persecute somebody. They'll just decide that they're lying. And they'll, they'll decide that this is um, somebody who needs their, their claim taken away. There's been some misunderstanding that no matter how many reports I write, I can't fix. And they just believe that this person is faking it. There is a pull in me that is created to try to vindicate this person. Oof, I'm thinking about a case. The, I can't imagine a report that I wrote with more emotion and passion than a report trying to vindicate somebody who was having their life taken away from them and were unable to support themselves but they believed that they were faking. There's a dynamic that happens in a person when you see a person you love carrying shame that's not theirs. You want to save that person. You want to justify that person. You want to hold that person up and say, it's not them. I am going to show you that it's not their shame. And the more purely that we can walk into shame that's not ours, the more purely a dynamic happens in heaven where there is a a glorious dynamic where God wants to break through and vindicate you. If you want to create a dynamic where God believes that you can carry the glory that he has for you, endure persecution. If you want to show God 
and work with him to learn to carry glory, endure persecution, endure shame, and God will say, this is my child, and I am going to pour out my glory on them, and I am going to show everybody, and I'm not just going to show everybody, I am going, when Jesus endured persecution, the glory came down and healed the world. It, it doesn't just heal you to endure persecution, it heals those around you. We don't endure persecution because it's fun or because uh, it's just something that God told you. Obedience is great, but, and it's a starting place, but we endure persecution To bring a portal from heaven down to earth. When Jesus was persecuted, the ascension, it created an ascension portal from earth to heaven. And the justice of God will break through. And I believe that persecution is one of the key powers that actually creates revival. It's an opportunity to bring heaven to earth. We will all be vindicated when we get to heaven. It's a very clear thing that will happen. But if, the, if you carry persecution and you don't mingle your own shame with it, as much as, much as you do, as little, like the less you mingle your own shame with it, the more powerful it becomes to actually create a breakthrough now where revival will come. And that's because God wants to vindicate us. And I believe it's because it shows that we're ready to actually be able to carry that glory. Let's pray. Lord, I was hearing it even in pre-service prayer. This church is a church that is ready. That is, well, maybe this way. That is calling out for Canada. This is a church that is calling out for Canada. And there are dynamics when you call out for a nation. There are dynamics when you call out for a city. And as we call out for Canada, you give me this dream about managing insults and about bringing life to dead things. Lord, we are made to, to go after vindication but we can't take it into our own hands like that teenager. We have to go and, and call down your vindication on us. We have to trust you to break through in your glory. We have to trust you to bring revival. To bring revival even when we're in suffering and it feels like there's no hope. Jesus, prepare us. I feel like this sermon is a preparation. Prepare us to walk wisely as we go into times when persecution is something that we will have to make decisions about. Where I will have to make decisions even for Maplecrest 
about what to talk about. So Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom that we need. And Lord, I pray that you would create an innocence in us in order to call down your vindication on us as we go forward to heal this nation. Amen.